Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be chatting with someone who many of us view as a vegan pioneer and a vegan hero, Dr. Milton Mills. Dr. Mills has been one of the most prolific and widely known speakers on behalf of a plant-based diet, both for health and for the animals. I am so happy to have him on our hen house. He is just such a brilliant mind. This is a great interview. I, and it, he was very generous with his time. And also the, the bonus was terrific. There's all the information. He has loads of information to impart, but it's very emotional. Mm. Uh, I just loved this interview. I hope everybody does. We had lunch with him randomly, like maybe last fall. Uh, it was after we were at a funeral, the same funeral, and and it was a few of us with Victoria Moran. And... I was a little like nervous because it's Milton Mills and I've always looked up to him and it's, it's always nerve wracking when I meet someone who I've looked up to and he is even more wonderful, like even more wonderful in person than I could have possibly imagined. And he's got a great personality. Very easy to talk to. You're really in for a treat with this. Before we get to that interview, we were both on this radio show last week called Connections on WXXI. And we talked about your appearance on the podcast last week, I think. And it was really an interesting opportunity because you were on to talk about the California proposition. And I was on to talk about being a climate migrant. And yes, we were on separately. It wasn't, it wasn't, they were separate shows. Yeah. It was two different shows. And it's actually a show that I will be guest hosting in the not too distant future. So I will keep people posted about that. But the reason I'm bringing that up in this context is because when I was a guest, I was the vegan at the table, you know, talking about a climate related issue. And when I host, I am also going to be the vegan at the table hosting something about regenerative economies. And it's very much based in environmentalism. And you know, all of these years later, I still find it hard to be a vegan at the table in these discussions without alienating people. Years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I went vegan, I had a pin. I had all these pins as one did. And it was like, you know, you can't be a meat-eating environmentalist or something. I got it from PETA as one did. It was like, of course, in my apartment. It wasn't I didn't wear it out. It was like on my bulletin board. But so real good outreach I was doing there to myself and my roommate who was also vegan. <laughs> you know, I still kind of struggle in that particular context. Like what to you? And by the way, I know I know that there are people who are listening to this who are in the flock who actually work in environmentalism and are vegan. And I feel almost embarrassed having this conversation because it's something they struggle with day in and day out. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, well, I don't really have to do it that often, but I, you know, just by happenstance, the class I am teaching this week in my animal law class is, is about the externalities and the, the other issues about factory farming. Mostly, I just focus about on animal welfare and rights issues in this class. But when it comes to factory farming, I don't think you can talk about it without talking about all the other issues as well. And I agree, I find it difficult, particularly when I'm talking to people who who are very passionate about some of the other issues, who don't get it about 
animal rights and don't understand, not only don't get it about animal rights, but don't understand the connections between factory farming and environmental issues. Or if they do understand there's a connection, this is kind of the new thing because everybody is kind of having to admit that that it's got a lot to do with climate, that factory farming and raising animals for food has a lot to do with climate. But the new thing is that people feel that they that personal change is irrelevant, that we need systemic change. And until we have a systemic change, there's no real reason that anybody should go vegan. We just have to fix everything and then change personally. And, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I think that's completely wrong. I think that personal change and systemic change are intertwined. It's hard to be an activist for something that you're not sufficiently passionate about to actually make personal changes for. Yeah, I find it really hard. You know, not all my students are vegan, that's for sure. And and I don't want to come on too strong and I don't want to alienate people. I don't want people to not hear the environmental arguments. And, and I'm not just talking about the environmental arguments, also the health arguments. And these are the issues that I, I try to at least touch on, the health issues, both systemic disease like heart disease and cancer and the contagious diseases, which has kind of become the hottest issue, the viruses and whatever. The environmental issues not only include climate, but all of the pollution issues that have already been there for that we've known about and biodiversity loss, huge, huge impacts of animal agriculture, resource depletion, the fact that it takes more resources to raise animals for food. And so you're depriving people of food when you feed food to animals that you could be feeding to people and the equity issues, the environmental racism, the the conditions of workers in the slaughterhouses, the contract growers in the farming, even some antitrust issues. There's so many issues. I'm not an expert in all of them. It's hard to teach all of them, but you have to mention them. And then if people like get concerned about that and they don't care about the animals, I just don't get it. Your class sounds really fun and uplifting. (laughs) And it's at nine o'clock in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So, (laughs) wow. I don't know why we don't get invited out to things. (laughs) So I was thinking this morning about the fact that like I was having a conversation with someone in this like group I'm in for women and non-binary people and it has nothing to do with veganism, but a lot of the people in it are very social justice minded. And it's a group of people who really support each other. And something happened recently that there was uh, a rancher who was applying to get in. And so I voted no, you know, and so I wound up in a conversation with someone on the list about it. And they were like, but as feminists, shouldn't we be uplifting each other? And I was like, Absolutely. But in that particular case, it is the absent reference, to quote Carol Adams, who I'm thinking about. I did not get into the feminist issues of meat, milk and eggs, but I know that everyone out there just thought that and wondered if I got into it. Yeah, I know you wanted to and you thought, okay, maybe... Maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too much. And I think you might have been right. I've never in my life thought maybe it's too much, just for <laughs> just for the record, just so that we're clear. But in any case, I was thinking like, you know, I'm having this conversation because in the last couple of years, I have started to put myself in more and more situations where I'm the vegan at the table in at a table that's not otherwise vegan. Obviously, I still have our hen house and other work I do, uh, you know, some freelance stuff, the stuff I do with Veg News. Obviously, this is a huge part of my life, but I have purposefully tried to enter other sort of progressive environments as the vegan. And it's really hard 
And I get that most of you who are listening to this live in those spaces. So, you know, hats off to you. But it is something I'm constantly aware of. And it makes me think of, uh, sorry to go on a huge tangent, but I have to. I'm listening to Ari Shapiro's memoir. He is a host of All Things Considered. And he sings with Pink Martini. It's a very good memoir. If anyone's interested, I recommend it. But just to be clear, it doesn't have anything to do with veganism. He's gay and he's my age exactly. He was talking about that when he started his career, he had to be really, really careful about when he was like publicly acknowledged as gay or even at work. It was something he was aware of. And obviously that's shifted. He he got married in San Francisco and San Francisco legalized it before it was federally uh, recognized. And then, of course, San Francisco redacted that. But he wound up in a lot of the photos, like for some reason, the photos that were going around. He was in it. And then suddenly someone recognized him and he was terrified because he was supposed to be this, you know, very unbiased party and he didn't want his personal life to get out there. 20 years later, I recognize that story as being the vegan in the room. And it's not the same exact thing by any means. But when I'm at work, I have to be really at work, meaning at WXXI, I have to be really intentional about what I'm pitching and when and how and why. Well, the thing that you said that really struck me is that he was really worried because he had been seen as unbiased. And it's I think that's so similar because he wasn't any more biased than anybody else. He just belonged to a subset of of the culture that people think of as having uh, a, an axe to grind or a cause. And that's exactly the same as with vegans or like everybody eats. So everybody has a bias about what they eat. Everybody has sex. Well, not everybody has sex, but people <laughs> have sex. <laughs> so everybody really does eat though. So that's really universal. And so people make choices about what they eat. The fact that our choices are this and their choices are that. We're either all biased or none of us are biased, but we're seen as biased. Everything we do is we see we've got an axe to grind. We've got a cause to 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 try champion. It strikes me that he felt the same way, that because people would see he was gay, they would see him as biased. Yeah, I have had this happen so many times recently. Just so you know, like a random example that someone would give to me, regardless of where I am, would be like, OK, so like you need to remain impartial so you can't bring up meat eaters or something. Ha ha ha. Just kidding. But it's like, no, you're not just kidding. You're not. And I think you're really right. Everyone eats. I do feel a little like welcome to the world, Jasmine, because you really have. I mean, you know, most of us have worked in in I know in places that didn't have anything to do with veganism and you really never have or not for any long period of time. So and now you're really in it because it's a media company and, you know, they very, very justifiably don't want to come across as biased. And, you know, that's a huge, yeah, a huge big deal. Definitely. And also, I really love where I am. I really love the circles that I get to be in when I'm not in this safe bubble. I like I feel like it does make a difference. And it, it you have to be you have to be careful and you but it, it it's important to be out there. If you're listening to this and you're the vegan at the table at your work or whatever, you're, you've got your safe space here. Come to the Flock Friday meetings and we'll give you virtual hugs, whatever, because we love you and we see you. We've got people like Dr. Mills out there who is, he's mainstreaming this shit like uh, you can't even imagine. So I think we should pivot to Dr. Milton Mills 
Milton Mills MD practices urgent care medicine in the Washington, D.C. area and has served previously as associate director of preventative medicine and as a member of the National Advisory Board for Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM. He has been a major contributor to position papers presented by PCRM to the United States Department of Agriculture regarding dietary guidelines for Americans. And he has been the lead plaintiff in PCRM's class action lawsuit that asked for warning labels on milk. Dr. Mills earned his medical degree at Stanford University School of Medicine and completed an internal medicine residency at Georgetown University Hospital. He has published several research journal articles dealing with racial bias in federal nutrition policy. He frequently donates his time via practicing at free medical clinics. He travels widely, speaking at hospitals, churches, community centers throughout the country. And he was featured in the recent attention-getting film what the health, and will also appear in the upcoming film, The Silent Vegan. He will be joining Marianne right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Dr. Mills. Thank you. Uh, It's great to be here. I can't believe it's taken us this long to have you here. I am thrilled because you've been doing this for a while. You are one of the OGs of this movement and touting the health benefits of a plant-based diet for a very long time before a lot of other people were. So In all those years, what have you found to be the most common misconception that you've run into about plant-based diets? And and I'm kind of curious as to whether it's changed over the years. Sure. I mean, the number one misconception that people have, and it stems from what we are taught, certainly in Western societies, is that we are omnivores and people are brought up believing that they need to have animal foods in their diet in order to have the best nutrition or a complete nutrition. And therefore, when you start talking to them about eliminating animal foods from their diet, instantly they become very concerned that they are in danger of missing out on important nutrients And if they have children, that they might be exposing their children to a diet that won't give them all of the nutrients they need to develop properly. So that is the overriding and persistent misconception, misapprehension about plant-based diets. And yes, it, it has changed somewhat over the years. I actually went plant-based, initially vegetarian. Later on, I transitioned vegan back in 1974 when I was a teenager. And back then, it was something that people thought sort of the hippies and weirdos did. (laughs) I remember those days. Yeah, yeah, the, the health nuts kind of kind of thing. And that certainly has changed quite a bit that there is 
now a much greater appreciation for the health benefits associated with plant-based eating, certainly the impact on the environment and climate. And that's evidenced by the amazing transformation that has taken place in terms of just the understanding of the word vegan that, you know, you weren't speaking Klingon or uh, some, <laughs> you know, weird, strange dialect. People understand that vegan is a thing and it's a good thing. And now you can go into the store and get vegan products, which, I mean, I think is a mostly a, a good thing. I mean, there's some areas of concern, but we can leave that for later. But what's really encouraging is that veganism my impression is that it is far outstripping vegetarianism, that people are not stopping at vegetarianism. And you don't see, for the most part, products advertised as vegetarian. They're right. advertised as vegan, which is a great thing. So, yeah, things have changed. Certainly not nearly enough. It's like with so many issues in our society and culture, there can be significant change and change that we will notice, but we can't become too comfortable with that or too relaxed in thinking that, oh, that means that things have really evolved or that the society has taken great steps because as we're seeing with women's rights, as we're seeing with the assault on voting rights for people of color, the craziness that's going on down in uh, Florida with LGBTQ rights and the banning of Black history and just all of this, these fascistic tendencies, these impulses are still widespread and are always looking for a way to come back into the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. It's like water. If there's a crack, it's going to find it. And before you know it, it's in your house. <laughs> that, that's totally true. Totally true. We can never rest. Things can go backwards so easily. The biggest block for people and what has changed is that as more and more people do go vegan and more it becomes more mainstream, it's going to eat into that biggest block because every healthy vegan is testament to the fact that you can be a healthy vegan. Absolutely. <laughs> every person who goes vegan and lives vegan openly is making a difference. So I totally want to get into, you're talking about this idea that people believe, and I think it's completely true, that humans are natural omnivores. And I know this is an entire talk that you give, and you can't give it right now, but it's so important. And can you just give us the basics of some of the evidence for why even some vegans may think this and think that, oh, that's why we have to take B12 and whatever, that it's, it's not natural to be vegan, but I'm going to do it anyway for the animals or whatever. Like, why is all of this wrong? Just your, the quick version of all of that information that you get out there about this issue. Sure. To kind of jump onto an imaginary drone and hover over our society and look at its history, what you see is that the themes and ideas that sort of have governed and driven Western science, Western thought, Western philosophy have grown out of Western behaviors. And so when, for instance, people were starting to look to actually try and define nutrition, what were nutrients, what was appropriate, and then once you've defined it in terms of its scientific nomenclature, then to define what constitutes a healthy, nutritious diet, 
The problem is they started with what they saw, meaning they started with what people were already eating and they made some mistakes in their assumptions. So, for instance, one of the really misleading impressions that early nutritionists got was that they looked at societies where people had been restricted to a staple crop, right? So that they were, say, mainly eating, I don't know, corn or rice or some artificially restricted plant food based on agricultural traditions. And they contrasted those societies with places where people had ready access or uh, easier access to animal foods. And depending on which societies they were looking at, they did see what appeared to be a healthier population in those early societies where people were including animal foods in their diet. And therefore, they concluded, well, this makes sense because we need these animal foods. But more sophisticated and later reevaluation has shown is that, number one, the societies they were looking at were had the restricted diets, not only in terms of the type of food that they were eating, but also in calories. And that it was the calorie restriction that was primarily accounting for their reduced growth patterns, their... Mm -hmm smaller stature and so forth, again, because they were eating a just a limited type of plant food, yes, there were certain vitamins and or minerals that they may not have been receiving that people who were eating animal foods were receiving. Right. Why is that? It's because we all know that we have an innate desire to eat a variety of foods, even at a single meal. Our taste preferences just drive us to want to have different flavors at a meal. Now, one of the ways that we as humans have tried to get around these restricted diets we've created for ourselves down through uh, history is that we use seasonings to add flavor and variety to an otherwise bland diet. But what I'm arguing in this book that I'm working on is that this innate desire for variety is nature's way of ensuring that we, by eating a variety of different plant foods, would have more complete nutrition. And it would ensure that we would get all of the various vitamins and nutrients and so forth that we would need. Hmm. And that if we were eating in that natural way, there would not have been a problem because, again, other studies have shown that when people eat a varied plant-based diet that, you know, is comprised of different plant foods and so forth, but they are actually healthier than people that eat animal foods. But in these early studies, they compared these people who were restricted in calories and in variety to people who effectively allowed the animals to do the gathering that they should have been doing. So, right. yeah, so you see the animals are out there gathering all these plant foods, storing these nutrients and minerals in their bodies. And that's why uh, the people had access to them, plus the additional calories. And that's why they appeared to be healthier. But these early researchers were only looking at growth patterns, adult height, weight, so forth. What they weren't looking at was long-term health, because what we now know 
and have known for over a hundred years is that populations that eat animal foods uh, in significant amounts over time end up developing chronic diseases and die sooner with oftentimes grievous diseases. Yeah. So that I think was um, a, a large part of the reason that we have been so misled and misserved by scientific research into nutrition and health. And let me just throw in one other thing about Western medicine, because this is an ongoing uh, pet peeve, for lack of a better expression, of mine. And that is that Western medicine, number one, developed from a very patriarchal, male-centric dynamic. And what I mean by that is the entire interaction in Western medicine is you go to the temple, you see the priest, and you cede all authority to that person. And that person then evaluates you and tells you what you will do. He'll give you whatever amulets or <laughs> to get you healthy, and you must do what you are told. It's great for doctors because for some, well, let me say for some doctors, because it, it makes them feel like saviors of the world. They're super people. You know, I save lives and, you know, at the top of the whatever. And I get to walk around in this white coat and feel like I'm God on earth. And it's not that great for patients. Uh, and certainly not when it comes to chronic disease. I mean, it does work well for things like trauma and infectious diseases, uh, or I should say it works better. Because I think it is always best to make your patient as much as possible an integral part of their care so that they understand what's going on and they can work with you and do their part. Totally. Heal. But certainly, if you fall off a ladder and break your arm, you want to go to the hospital and right. let do his thing. Okay. Right. But it also helps if they can tell you, oh, by the way, you know, if you take some vitamin C and you do this, and you do that, it's going to help your arm heal better. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they don't know a lot of that stuff. So that was part of the problem. But, you know, Western medicine came into its own when the major things killing people were infectious diseases, postpartum infections, pneumonias and, and so forth, uh, and traumas. And so it was easy for it to kind of develop with this very physician-centered, God-complex dynamic. And Western medicine has as its core principle the disease model, meaning that the belief is that there is, for every disease, some pathogen or disordered process that the physician can step in, identify, and then prescribe a medication or therapy to remedy. And again, that is true for infectious disease. It's true for postpartum infections when doctors would deliver babies and not wash their hands and pass on bacteria to women that would ultimately kill them. But it is not that true for chronic diseases that result from a lifetime of disordered eating. And that's exactly what happens. You go and your cholesterol is too high and they give you a medication to get you instead of mentioning that you could do something about why your cholesterol is so high. Because they don't know for the, for the most part. And, and they not just give you something for your cholesterol, but it's something that has a whole slew of side effects. I should say potential side effects. I don't want to come across as being anti-medication because I'm not. 
in my own practice, I try to use a combination of traditional medicines where appropriate, even when treating chronic disease with the idea of we're going to use these medicines, hopefully as a bridge to get you into a more diet and lifestyle that's, that will help your body heal itself. Right. Uh, from well, it's, And you give your patients that message that, you know, if you're willing to do this diet, this is the diet you could follow that would help you. Too many patients, I think, don't even get that information. Oh, no. No, they don't. Because physicians, by and large, are not taught about the connection between diet and chronic disease in medical school. They're taught the disease model, that heart disease happens because the cholesterol is too high. And the way you deal with that is you put them on a statin yeah. or you put them on some other drug. Is that changing at all? Because I've been hearing that for so long and it, it doesn't seem to shift. Um, it is changing glacially. There are a few medical schools around the country that have started to try to incorporate teaching tracks that seek to educate students about the role of nutrition in the development of chronic diseases. One of my very good friends and colleagues, Dr. Lakshman Mopuri, helped develop a nutrition course for medical students while he was a student at Wayne State Medical School in Michigan. And I've heard tell that Harvard is working to incorporate nutrition into its uh, basic science courses. To what extent they're doing it, I don't know. There is some movement, but again, it's never at the rate or in the way that I think it needs to yeah, be. Yeah, absolutely. For one reason or another, I happened to be researching or just Googling type 2 diabetes the other day because I was curious because of a conversation I had had about whether the knowledge that it's diet related is out there. And it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's crazy. There are all these theories about what's causing the epidemic of type 2 diabetes. I wouldn't say that diet is never mentioned, but it's my knowledge or opinion from everything I've learned that it's completely diet related, that that's why we have type 2 diabetes. And that's what everybody should be looking at. And I, you know, we all live in our own little bubbles. And I was shocked to find how small my, my bubble of believing that type 2 diabetes is a completely diet diet-related disease that can be completely addressed by diet is a very small bubble indeed. Yeah. Well, I would probably say it is largely diet-related because there's a, a few little quirks in there that can, depending on when someone is diagnosed, how far gone they are, they may or may not be able to completely reverse uh -huh. it. But I will say just as a general rule, at least 85% of the people with type 2 diabetes could put it into remission and come off their medicines. Yeah, they went shocking. completely plant-based. And the other 15% would end up taking much less medication. So if they were on insulin shots. It's not necessarily an on or off. You can you can improve, improve your life a lot. Yeah, just, yeah. And, and, and that's important because that translates into years of life saved and also a monumental reduction in diabetes-associated disease. And I'll just give you a quick and dirty analogy I use. I don't know if most people have ever either made or seen someone making a pineapple upside-down cake. It used to be my favorite cake when I was growing up, and, and so I watched my mother make it all the time for me. The first thing you do is you melt some butter or margarine in a pan over some heat, and then you pour in sugar and you slowly stir it 
until that sugar and butter caramelizes. Well, every cell in our body is wrapped by a membrane made of fatty molecules. Our body runs about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And once the level of sugar in the blood goes too high, you start to get that process. What a great image. Yeah. I, I, so I, the higher it is, the, the more of that caramelization process and that's wow. where you get the damage. And it affects everyone. Yeah. No, diabetes is just the most hideous. It kill, it's a fatal illness that kills you step by step by step. It's just it a dreadful thing. If people would only make the appropriate changes. You know the story of Cassandra, right? The Trojan priestess, she was a sister of Hector and Paris, and she offended one of the gods. And so they cursed her to always prophesy the truth and never be believed. Right. And, yeah. Now it's coming back to me. Yeah, and it drove her crazy. And she ran around the city screaming, I see Troy and Frank. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes. I, I so identify. Why don't I, why don't I have that myth? Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm changing my name. <laughs> She's kind of one of my poignant heroes because I know, like, yeah. I I feel you, Cassandra. You want to tear your hair out. But it's not the only truth. And I want to ask you about, because there are so many people, even people who I know are animal rights oriented, who are in the medical field or whatever, who tout the health benefits of a whole foods plant-based diet, but just stick to the health arguments and don't like to go near the animal arguments. And you're not one of them. I have this quote that I absolutely love. I'm going to read it. Killing animals is a gateway to losing our moral center and throwing our moral compass off. So I want to know how deeply you think that, how deeply rooted that killing animals is to what has made us go awry. And I do believe that human society has gone awry in many ways. Okay. And, and I'm also curious as to whether you're afraid of getting pushback for that, not being believed, thinking that you're just selling people a vegan argument. Okay. I'm going to answer this question what may seem like an odd way, but it's a way that is very central to who I am and why I actually went plant-based. I actually became plant-based after I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church recommends that its members become plant-based because the Bible teaches that is a diet God designed to see. Right there, first chapter, Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, be vegans in essence. He told them that they were going to be fruit-based vegans. Later on, after they kind of messed up and had to get thrown out of the garden, he enlarged their diet to include what Genesis refers to as the herbs of the field, which would be legumes, grains, root vegetables, and so forth. I'm saying that to say that I have very deep spiritual beliefs. I know that a lot of people may not share those, but, but I do. And recently, I've been re-examining the Bible, and something sort of leapt out at me that hadn't occurred to me before, and, and, and this is what it is. Everybody is familiar with the passage where after God creates Adam, he's talking with his son, and they say, it is not good for the man to be alone. And if you ask people, okay, what did God do after that? 95% of people will say he created Eve. And that's what I thought, too, until I reread the Bible. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, after they say, it is not good for the man to be alone, says, and out of the ground, God created all of the fowls of the air and the beasts of the earth and brought them to Adam to give them names. And if you really contemplate what that is telling you, it is profound and it is mind-blowing. Because one, it's telling us that our first companions 
were the other creatures that got put here. But that God recognized the sentience of these creatures, which is why he brought them to Adam to give them names. Right. They and, needed names and they were good company. Like, well, they were, if, if they they were, were just, if they, yeah, if they're not sentient and conscious, they wouldn't be, right. they wouldn't need names. So they wouldn't be keeping him company. That's a really, really beautiful reading. Yeah. So what made me think about this recently is that, number one, why did God even let us into his mindset? Why did he think it was important for us to understand that he put animals here to be our companions? He could have just, Genesis could have just said, and God created this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and boom. But he didn't. He lets us into his thought process. I don't want this human to be alone. So I am going to provide these other creatures to be his companions. And then from actually observing them with their mates, that's when Adam turned to God and said, hey, I don't have a mate. And that's when God put him in sleep and created Eve. So the point from a very spiritual aspect for me is that our relationship with our other creatures on this planet is supposed to be much deeper, much closer, much more intimate, and much more caring than we have appreciated because Western society has poisoned our thinking into looking at animals as commodities, as things, as machines to be used and abused. And clearly, that is not what God intended. And so I have made the argument, and I will continue to make this argument, I do say that the health basis for veganism, in my mind, is the foundational argument for being plant-based. Because the fact that we are strict herbivores by design and physiology, anatomy, and natural history, and that can be shown because when we depart from that diet, we get sick and we die, means that for our benefit, for the benefit of the planet, we should stick to that diet. It's what's best. And if that is true, then it makes it that much more heinous and egregious that we deliberately, willfully visit cruelty, abuse, and death on these innocent creatures. I mean, that's, for lack of a better word, is sick. Yeah, sure is. I mean, my brain cells are just kind of like having a little seizure because I can't find the words to, to express the emotion that I have that we're supposed to be plant eaters. It's what's best for us. And instead, we go out and we kill other creatures. And before we do it, we subject them to just lives of misery and abuse. That is just evil and extreme. And, and it's like the synergy between all of the arguments, the fact exactly. that it's best for us, it's saving the animals, it's best for the planet, it's kill we're killing the, the planet. Like the fact that all of these things exactly. work together is so powerful. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think it's important because I've heard a lot of people say, oh, I'm vegan for the animals. And the subtext there is that I'm willing to sacrifice my health to save these animals. But I, the, the problem I have with that argument is that, number one, suffering is suffering. And in my mind, it does not make sense 
to substitute human suffering for the suffering of other animals. I mean, because you're not decreasing suffering in the world. Number two, while James Smith may have that sacrificial impulse to say, I know it's harming my health, but I'm going to do it because I love bunnies, 90 plus percent of the rest of the world's population will not harm their health or the health of their children to help other animals. That's not a winning argument, but it's a completely unnecessary argument. Totally, yeah. Right, because we should be plant-based. And the fact that we aren't is just unconscionable and indefensible. But it does kind of bring up the whole topic of healthy veganism. Ah. Getting back to the health argument in a kind of different way. I mean, a lot of people seem to think that just going vegan is enough to keep you healthy. That We know that's not true. Like you can have cotton candy for right. breakfast, donuts for lunch. That is yeah. nonsense. I mean, I think if I'm getting your point right, it's important not only to be vegan for the animals, but to be vegan for yourself. And that means being a healthy vegan. So what are your rules here? Aside from cutting out, I mean, it's not just a matter of cutting out meat, dairy, and eggs. I know this is a big topic and you're writing a whole book here and, you know, we can't do the whole thing. But what are your basic rules? Before I, I, I delineate those, let me say this, that we live in America and America was founded on this idea of individual autonomy and that we are free to do what we choose to do as long as it does not infringe on the rights of someone else. And so I want to be clear that vegans have the right to eat junk food vegan junk food if they choose to. I mean, I would choose that they not do it that often or to their ultimate detriment, but I want to avoid the specter that there are these little electric vehicles roaming around the city with a V flashing on the top and vegan police are driving. I would be fine with forcing people to be vegan if I could, but I know I can't. So yeah, we have to go another route. I'm going to break in your house and, you know, snatch all your food and, and you know, put you in jail. So you know, vegans can do stupid things just like non-vegans. So that being said, the principles, the broad principles that I outline. So let's start with the meat analogs, because that's a big question that people have all the time. And one of the more specious arguments is that meat eaters will say, well, rose, rose, and beyond birds are really processed, and they're, you know, they're not like, and I'm, you know, my response to them is, look, there is nothing more processed than a hamburger, okay? It looks nothing like that animal it was taken from. And if you don't believe me, climb into a pen with a living bull and get some hamburger from it, okay? With your bare hands. Yeah, nicely said. I also like to point out that, that animals are really machines for processing plants into high saturated fat, like really unhealthy food. Well, yeah, I didn't- It's processed I, in every way. You're absolutely right. And I'll tell you, I sometimes make a facetious argument that if you're going to eat meat, uh, we need to stop burying our relatives and just have the funeral and then send the body to the butcher for processing because meat is meat, right? But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that alone. So uh, look, well, let me finish what I wanted to say about the meat uh, analogs. There was a study done at my medical school, I'm a modern Stanford, that compared Beyond Burgers to Beef. And it was a crossover study. They had two groups for the first four weeks. One group ate uh, beef hamburgers. The other group ate Beyond Burgers. At the four-week point, they crossed over. And what they showed was that while the people were eating the Beyond Beef products, their cholesterol plummeted. 
their trimethylamine oxide, which is a very toxic compound that is related to cancer, heart disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, and a whole bunch of other uh, dementia, a whole bunch of other issues plummeted. Their blood pressure came down and they lost weight. So by a wide number of biometric markers, their health improved. When they went back to eating meat, went the opposite direction. People who had been eating meat, once they, when they switched to the Beyond Burgers, again, those biometric markers improved. We also know from the Adventist health studies, the Adventist church is comprised of people who have long used meat analogs. Uh, both Adventist 1 and Adventist 2 health studies have shown across the board that Adventists live an average of 11 years longer than the average American, that they have less heart disease, less cancer, less diabetes. I mean, yeah. again, that's a, real, that's a really excellent point. Even though the diet is not necessarily what we consider this super healthy, it's still right. that much better. Exactly. So, so my point is that you can include these things in your diet judiciously, and they can be part of a healthy diet. Now, the fundamental principle is this. The bulk of what you eat should always be unprocessed plants, okay? Or minimally, let me say minimally processed plants. Right. Uh, like uh, cooking is okay. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to mash your potatoes and throw them, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's cool too. It horrifies me when I think about the way the average American eats because people eat mainly meat. What's on their plate is a giant slab of dead flesh and a sprinkling of vegetables. Right. I was like, no wonder everybody's dying and sick. And I mean, you go to any restaurant, like virtually, I mean, things have gotten better because there might be a vegan option, but it's right. the one option in, the, in this sea of dead animals. Exactly. Exactly. And again, the vast majority of what they're eating is dead tissue. You know, I look at this, these commercials for this Tavala crap that, you know, they mail these meals to these people and they put it in this little oven and scan a code. And it's like a huge slab of meat and a couple of vegetables. And I'm like, this is what is killing you people. Yeah. This is what will cause you to die because your digestive tract was not made for this. Your physiology is not made for this. And you are essentially living your life as a carnivore. You're going to be sick. You're going to be unhealthy. And you're going to die well before your time. Oh, by the way, you're going to look like crap. Uh, for most of <laughs> So you always want to make sure that the majority of what you're eating is unprocessed or minimally processed plant foods. And, you know, if you want to chop up a, a little Beyond Burger or Beyond Sausage and something or, you know, have a, a, a seitan cutlet or something like that as part of that overall meal, as long as the majority of what you're eating yeah. is plants, make sure you're getting some green leafy plants at least three times a week, legumes in one form or another at least three times a week because the longest lived populations on earth are those that eat the most beans, whole grains, and fresh fruit. And those are the overriding principles. And then as with people, it is true for our diet. The more colorful your diet, the healthier you will be. And that's also true psychologically when it comes to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that really leads me to, I think it leads me, you have been very outspoken on racism and diet 
right. racism and racism, uh, not even just vis-a-vis diet. And I just don't want to leave this conversation without going there. I picked out another quote and it said, being a black man in America prepared me to be vegan. Well, number one, thank you for appreciating that quote, because for me, that is a deeply profound statement and it's true. And what I'm trying to get at to people is that from an early age, as a black kid, as a black teenager, as a black man, I'm told you're not as good. There's something wrong with you. You can't be trusted. You are defective in some way. And the only way that I was able to achieve is to reject that uh, socialization and those ideas and that poisonous societal way of viewing me as a black man and to know within myself that if I am doing the appropriate self-examination, if I am making sure that I am educating myself appropriately and acting on solid, worthwhile, moral principles, that I am as good or better than anyone else. And therefore, when I became convinced that a plant-based diet was in fact the healthiest diet for me, it didn't matter to me that most people weren't doing it. They were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It was easy for me to see that. They frequently are. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, when I went to medical school, my first advisor used to try to intimidate me and say, well, Mel, are you ever going to be a real doctor? That was literally water on the back of a duck. I mean, I'm just like, you are the one who is confused and don't know or see the truth. And eventually, hopefully you'll live long enough to learn it. Boy, that is exactly how I think every vegan feels about being vegan. Every vegan who's able to stick to it mm-hmm. in spite of like ridiculous pushback that they get from every place, whether it's about the animals or about the health or whatever, or just saying, no, the rest of you are all wrong. Right. And you have to have that ability. Yeah. yeah. So I totally hear you. I think it's an amazing analogy. It really speaks to me. I mean, I don't know when it is that you said that, but as I said in the beginning, you've been doing this for a long time. And I would imagine that for a long time, you felt like a voice crying in the wilderness and all alone with this. But I'm just wondering whether you feel, particularly with the growth of Black veganism, that we're reaching a different point and you're a little bit more in the mainstream than you you have been for most of your career? You know... um it's it's emotional for me to think about these things. Um, the short answer to your question is yes, but it's so much more than that. Because over the years, I have received messages um, from... Um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a crybaby. Um, <laughs> I think this really affects me emotionally. Please, please feel comfortable and, and you know, go where you need to go. There was one mother who wrote me and she said, you know, when I decided to go vegan, I was really worried about my children and I was getting all of this pushback from my family. They were telling me I was going to hurt them and harm them. She said, then I saw your lectures on our humans says I need meat. And I knew I was doing the right thing. And so that's just one of them. Yeah, I've gotten a number of 
you know, from Australia, from Europe, these emails and messages where people have said just how much help the work that I've tried to put out there has, has been to them and, and has helped them understand the rightness of what they're doing. And they've used it to educate other people. So, and all of those things to me are like little tokens from heaven to let me know that I am doing the right thing and that I am making a difference, which you don't always, it's not always the thunderstorm that, that makes the biggest difference. It's the quiet flood that really changes the landscape. So I know I've done what I was commissioned to do and that the things that I've done have really helped people. And that's the thing that is most important to me. Yeah. I'm happy that you feel, and I think you're right, that uh, you're starting to see the fruits, that there are harbingers of change certainly going on. Yeah. Well, one, one other little vignette. When I was approached by the directors of What the Health, Keegan and Kiff, when they approached me to be in What the Health, I was completely surprised because I wasn't even aware that they were aware of the things that I'd done. And, and I remember at the time thinking, yeah, what the heck? It can probably do some good. I can't tell you how many Black people over the years have come to me and said, I didn't think veganism was for Black people until I saw you. Wow. Wow. One of my very good friends now, we actually met in person and became good friends, she had lupus that was destroying her body. She was having problems with different organ systems. Her doctor was ready to put her on methotrexate in addition to all these other drugs. And she watched What the Health and she told him, you know what, I'm going to try being plant-based first. He told her, if you do that, you're going to die. She said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And within, I think, six months, she was off all of her meds. She's been in remission ever since. Crazy. Uh, and I met her when I went to New Rochelle, New York, to do a um, uh, lecture. And this very striking, very tall African-American woman just came up to me in tears and threw her arms around me. She said, you saved my life. And then she told me her story. So God has let me know that I've done some, some, some yeah. wild things. In just the shortest amount of time, we have really seen, and largely due to your work, and I'm, I'm sure to that movie, and other other ways that the word has gotten out. We've seen it go from, from most people saying veganism is a white thing to black veganism being totally at the leadership of, of, of this movement. And my thing is, I tell people, look, don't walk in the room with your head down. Don't walk in the room quiet. It's time to be militant when it comes to being vegan because we know we're right, okay? We don't want to be arrogant, but we can be militant because I'm just not going to put up with people telling people to eat poison and do things that are going, that we know are going to harm them and result in disease and death. It's like, why are we silent anymore? This is crazy. It's like yeah. watch, watching people drive off a, a road that we know is washed off and they're going to go off the cliff. It's like, are you crazy? <laughs> it's yeah, like, I mean... Like, maybe they'll be offended. Maybe they won't like us. Who cares? Who cares, exactly. Tell us, speak the truth. You know, people tell me, you're being offensive. I'm like, you don't know offensive until you've seen someone dying in a hospital from a preventable disease. That's what's offensive. Okay? Yeah. But yeah. No, spare me. 
I could talk to you all day. I wish we had the time, but I'm going to have to let you go. But before I do, I do want, you mentioned that you're working on a book. I just want you to tell people a little bit about that. And do you have a projected date or did I give you just, just give you a stomachache asking you that question? And also, aside from the book, how can people find out more about your work? Yeah. So the book is I don't have a projected date because my perennial issue is trying to navigate that area between work and time to write. Yeah, I can't even imagine. But it is the holy grail of my life. It is the thing that I have to do before I leave this earth. It's all of the lectures and things that I have put together, I've extracted and research I've done for the book. It will be called Diet by Design. I like it. Which I think is a very beautiful title. And uh, hopefully another couple of years and I'll, I'll, I'll get it done. All right. We're all waiting. No the pressure. Me- yes. In the meantime, people can go to my website. The name is kind of long, but it's very descriptive. It's, and I'll just say it, Dr. Milton Mills, plantbasednation.com. Because that's my goal, a plant-based nation. So it's just Dr. Milton Mills, plantbasednation.com. No, I-, I highly recommend going there and looking at your enormous collection of videos, really, really on every topic. The people who are frustrated that this interview didn't go longer can find out a lot more there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Mills. Thanks, guys, for inviting me. This has been really a pleasure. Absolutely. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is, is awfully good news, as as frequently when we find out why the meat industry's anxieties are rising, it's something that pleases us. I don't know whether it's true or not. It doesn't sound true. All right, this is from meetingplace.com, the column by Gregory Bloom. Facebook Meta's anti-meat agenda. Did you know that Facebook had an anti-meat agenda? I sure didn't. I, but, you know, if it does, I could not be more thrilled. All right, he's talking about this e-commerce division he has at his wholesale meat company. And what he says was they tried Facebook ads, Facebook meta ads. And not only was our, our I guess, ROI's return on investment very poor on meta, but many of our ads for meat products were unjustifiably denied by meta. Common rejection emails said, your item was rejected because it doesn't comply with our policies. This item is not live in your shop. Whatever, whatever that means. They want the animals to be alive. I, no, I, I don't think that's... And then he looked into it further and he found um, a commerce policy regarding meats that reads, listings may not promote the buying or selling of animals or animal parts or land in ecological conservation areas. Some products from animals intended for consumption, such as raw fish, meat, or eggs, period. That's not a sentence. So I have, I have, I, I can't account for like why that doesn't make sense, but... It sure sounds good. And he seems to think it means that that they won't take meat ads. 
And then he said he was it's informed by an employee, so we don't have any actual confirmation of this. The Meta employee informed us that they are, quote, not a meat-friendly company, unquote. Some ads may get through their anti-meat filters, but even though we aren't selling live animals, the promotion of the parts of processed animals simply does not align with their values in italics. Uh, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> I can't say I haven't been on Facebook much. Social media is wearing at my soul. But, you know, I, I can't say I have seen a lot of Facebook ads on me. But, you know, you tend to get the Facebook ads that like kind of are suit your feet. So I wouldn't kind of expect to. Anyway, he's trying to figure out why. And his conclusion is that they've obviously bought into the narrative that meat is bad for our health and bad for the planet and are actively fighting against us. I wonder how many employees at Meta and Instagram are actually vegans or vegetarians. That would be some interesting data, but none of us would be surprised with the results. Really? Because I sure would be surprised and thrilled. So yeah, this is all good news. Uh, he's asking for people to uh, respond to his column by telling him about their results in buying ads on Meta and Instagram. And he, you know, he goes on to uh, talk about how meat companies are just wasting their money if they're if they're spending money on ads. And because based on his experiences and thousands of dollars spent on Meta ads, I'd say we are all being duped. I I, I just love that story more than I can tell you. All right, our next story is actually. It's a little old and you might have seen it because it was kind of making the rounds and it was just the most, I, I don't know why I've, I've avoided talking about it until now, and except for the fact that it's just the worst thing. I mean, the worst thing in the world. This is by one Peter Godfrey Smith, who is, you might have heard of him. He, he's a philosopher and I guess a historian. I don't, but but he's written a bunch of books and some, a lot of them about animals. I, I, Metazoa is one. The one on octopuses is another. He really has a deep interest in uh, animals. Veganism didn't agree with me. What's the most ethical alternative? Already, are you not going crazy? Um, and that's not even the original title. The article seems to have been originally titled, My Body Resists Veganism. What's the most ethical alternative? And The Guardian may have changed it because that was ridiculous. <laughs> if that's true, I'm glad. I just have to read some of this to you. Suppose a person is very concerned about the ethical issues around food and farming, especially animal welfare, but for whatever reason, finds that a wholly plant-based diet does not work for them. What is the most defensible step away from veganism, the best compromise to make, if it is a compromise at all? Now, immediately, my back is up, but it, this is the kind of situation in which I know that I should be patient. Like if people have problems going vegan, they might have legitimate problems and they might be things that we could talk through or they might be problems that, you know, they just can't overcome. So, you know, we have to wait and see what really happened here and, and how hard is this? Uh, because as you may know, I had problems adjusting to a vegan diet and I had problems with my protein consumption because it was really important to me to stick with it. I, I fiddled around and started eating a little better on the vegan side and in eating more nuts and seeds in particular and worked it out and got my energy back. But I'm not, I, you know, I'm not one of these people who say that you can't have any problems adjusting to a vegan diet because I, I, I mean, it could have been something else for me, but I really doubt it. All right. So he goes on to say about a year ago, this question became vivid to me soon after I set out on an experiment, a near vegan diet for a month. He didn't even go vegan for a month. He went near vegan. And wait till you hear how he defines near vegan. 
And he points out that for a while, he's been trying to eat in a way mindful of ethical issues, avoiding, albeit imperfectly, the products of inhumane factory farming. He couldn't even get himself off factory farming. And then he decides to go near vegan. You know, he mentions that one of the reasons for this is that he has spent recent years working on questions about animal minds. It's talking about octopuses and cephalopods, but then moving on from there. The ethical questions around food began to feel quite pressing. Really? Really, Peter? Oh, oh you know, what a philosopher you are. I, I mean, this is one of those situations that makes you question whether anybody should be allowed to become an academic. If you have talent, maybe you should use it in another direction rather than uh, this nonsense. So he points out, I wanted to find out how I felt on a diet with almost no animal products. So he doesn't go vegan. It was near vegan, which meant two eggs a day. <laughs> two eggs a day. And minor, de what he refers to as minor deviations, like he didn't worry if he was given butter for his toast. He didn't ask what was in Thai sauces, and he continued to take his fish oil tablets. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of deviations. That's not vegan. And I don't know what near vegan means. Well, you know, I, I guess near vegan is a legitimate term. I suppose you could say that. It doesn't have to be on or off. All right. And he has found in the past that a high protein and fairly high fat diet is best for his general well-being. That's interesting because that's contrary to everybody else in the human race. But, you know, good for Peter. The aim of the experiment was to look at the possibility of heading towards veganism and to do this primarily for animal welfare reasons. I accept some of the arguments against meat made on environmental grounds, but the issues around animal suffering are primary for me. Well, apparently they're not pri just primary. Like, that's the only thing he's looking at. Like, do if, if you care about animal welfare, does that give you a pass on in the environment? Uh, you know, uh, what? All right. So after a few days, he j it was just he was really suffering. A few days, a few days, two eggs a day. It was much harder than he expected. He felt unsettled, tired, and much of the time quite cold, surprisingly, because it was February in Australia. He had heartburn. He had headaches. He had inattention. It did not go well. This is... Like a few days. Oh my God, this guy has quite an imagination. So on day 10, he decided to change plans and add dairy products. Uh, and it was just so surprising. Immediately, he felt fine. Fine, absolutely fine as soon as he added the dairy products. Then I think he went back and, and, and it was just as bad. Like, I think this guy is, might be crazy. If one is looking for a way to step away... Thinking primarily about animal welfare questions, because apparently you can give yourself a pass on any other questions, then three options appear that have completely different kinds of justification. Now, he's already mentioned that he thought eggs, you know, from from uh, Happy Farms were justifiable. And that's why he went with them. But he doesn't list them as one of the three options here. I don't know. Like, that makes no sense at all. But either does anything else. One is humanely farmed meat, especially beef. The other is wild-caught fish, and the third are dairy products. And he goes on and on and on and on. I can't read it all to you. The beef, you know, again, he's ignoring <laughs> he's ignoring the environmental concerns because he just gets to do that. He, he feels that the humanely farmed beef is completely accessible, tends to come from specialist butchers who work with individual farms. And in cities, it's it's obtainable. It tends to be expensive. Well, yeah, no shit. If it's not like five times as expensive, don't even think about it. And if it is five times as expensive, you better look into it carefully because they're probably lying. And he believes that these animals have a good life overall. Okay, so we kill them. So the um, wild-caught fish, 
why he would think that wild caught fish, well, I, of course he's in, ignoring environmental issues, but why he would still think that these are an ethical alternative. I think, I think it's probably because, you know, their lives are not that bad until they die. And he has, he has chosen to think that the deaths involved in commercial fishing are probably not especially awful. Apparently he has not looked into this at all compared with the deaths that would follow in the wild. So we should look at what ha would happen to these animals in the wild and decide, well, we can't do anything worse than that to them. That's apparent. This is a philosopher. All right, dairy. He thinks it's extremely difficult to bring dairy farm close to the welfare level seen in the best humane farming of beef cattle, which is, as we know, a fairly low bar. And he knows of one dairy farm in Australia that is exemplary. It's called How Now Dairy. They keep cows and calves together, sharing the milk. There is no early separation. Well, at some point, there's separation. At some point, also, uh, you know, the cows get depleted. At some point, all sorts of bad things happen. Some cheese is made using that milk, though it is not easy to obtain where I live. Also, that he mentions, he owns shares in that dairy. <laughs> oh, it may be that this kind of humane dairy can survive and expand, in which case a dairy option might be clearly best. All right, at this point, you're probably thinking... And he does say that, uh, you know, dairy involves, he, he goes into them how they have to be pregnant and recently given birth to produce milk, which is useful information for most people who don't know that. The thing you're probably thinking is he's not worried about scaling or he hasn't thought about scaling. Like these may be adequate for him in his, uh, you know, highfalutin profession as a best-selling author and a philosopher and whatever it else he does. But, you know, he's not that concerned about that because he realizes that at least some of the options he's considering do not scale up to yield a solution. You know, he is a philosopher, so he has to go there. But then he, like, lets himself off the hook. Does yield a solution to questions about diet for humanity as a whole, especially in the long term? Well, actually, in the short term as well. What do you mean, especially in the long term? These reflections are intended for people right now, well, rich people right now, in situations where all three of the options discussed are feasible everyday choices because they have a lot of money. Given a person's economic situation, what is available to them? All right, he goes into economics. Well, yeah, yeah, well, that means they're not a solution at all. They're like what you feel like doing and what people who are like you might feel like doing, and they have nothing to do with a solution. Figure out how to be vegan. That's a solution. And then you can pass that information on to other people. One of my favorite points that he makes, I know I'm going on and on about this, but really, you, you really should read it. He does feel that the incongruity in the claim that humane farming of any kind that includes death might be a positive good. Well, yeah, that is a little incongruous, but many views get themselves into awkward places in this area. And then he points to a film that was published by Animals Australia, a video, and he points out that Animals Australia is great, which they are. And then the suggestion he, he says in the video is that by choosing plant-based foods, we can give cows, quote, the life they dream of, a happy, low-stress life. But if plant-based foods, he points out, come to dominate human diets, the result will not be a happy cow scenario, but something closer to a no more cow scenario. This is the most, this is the oldest nonsense in the book, as far as I'm concerned. In the first place, Animals Australia was talking about cows who are alive here and now, who are suffering here and now, and who they can save and uh, give the life they dream of. They're not, I, I really doubt that since they are an excellent organization, that they think that we should go on to create cows in order so that they can go to sanctuary at Animals Australia. People have to deal with the fact that if plant-based foods come to dominate human diets, the result will 
not be a happy cow scenario, but something closer to a no more cow scenario. Yeah, that that's it. If we're going to bring these animals into into life just to suffer, then we can't do that. And if that means that they're not going to exist, that's fine. We don't have the necessity to bring into being every life that could ever possibly exist. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for humans, for animals, for anybody. Like, it's just not the way the world works. Oh, sorry. I know I'm getting a little, I'm getting a little overwrought. All right, let's move on. Our third article and this is by the Chef's Table column at Meeting Place by Michael Formicella. Animal welfare in the meat industry. Well, there's a title for you. I've always thought that that this guy, you know, he's a chef. He's he's on the outer reaches of the meat industry. And I don't think he knows anything about the way that animals are raised. But, you know, maybe he does. And he's just a hypocrite but, or a liar. But my my sense is that he doesn't. All right, so he's offering to give his take on animal welfare ethics and environmental concerns in the meat industry. Well, that's a big topic. And this is how he defines animal welfare. It refers to the ethical and humane treatment of animals raised for meat production. It includes ensuring that animals have access to clean water, adequate food, and proper medical care. Now, right there, we're saying, yeah, well, it's a lot more than that. But then he goes on. It also involves providing a suitable living environment and minimizing any pain or distress the animals may experience while alive and during slaughter. Ha, 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 Yeah. So he talks about, you know, some do the bare minimum. Others go be above and beyond the basic practices to offer more humane treatment of animals, such as providing ample space for animals to move around freely and engaging in environmental enrichment activities. Yeah, what others? Like you're, you're writing for the mainstream meat industry. I think he's legitimately concerned and he points and he's concerned himself and he points out that over the years, consumers are becoming increasingly concerned about animal welfare and he feels that the industry is responding. More and more meat producers are implementing their own stringent animal welfare standards to meet the demands of their customers. Oh my God, the bullshit, the bullshit. Well, sorry. And, you know, he just goes on and on about also environmental concerns and climate change and how it's a concern. And, of course, uh, the most interesting thing about this column is that he gets as as deceptive and ridiculous it is. He gets unbelievable amounts of pushback telling with people telling him he's crazy. Uh, So that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, 
And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>